Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Kenneth Tanner. Kenneth is a pastor of Church of the Holy Redeemer in Rochester Hills, Michigan. He writes for numerous websites and magazines, including the Huffington Post and Sojourners. Ken, welcome back to the podcast. Always good to be here, Scott. It's always good to have you. We're in summer. It's uh, it's it's August. We're winding up the summer, coming into the home stretch, and we have some interesting readings. Our first reading here is from Isaiah chapter one, verse one, and then verses ten through twenty, where we get a kind of assessment of uh, what's going on in Israel and. It's it's not great, right? Uh, <laughs> things are, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, I was reading something that was saying that uh, in Luther's commentary uh, or preface to the, uh, he says, if one, this is actually in his introductory remarks to uh, to reading Isaiah. He said, if one would understand the prophecies, it is necessary that one knows how things were in the land, how matters lay, what was in the mind of the people, what plans they had with respect to their neighbors, friends and enemies, and especially what attitude they took toward their country, in their country toward God and toward the prophet, whether they held to his word and worship or to idolatry. So, yeah, that's interesting, right? You, you could like go through the prophetic books like that, right? Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's clear. Um, here that they have a system that they've created um, where they um, have a form of religion and a lot of things that they're doing, but no genuine connection to God. And so, yeah, instead of the, the sacrifices, which were supposed to keep them from from you know and uh, worshiping a god who doesn't exist or you know worshiping empty images um uh, they in fact have, have figured out a way to do it um it's it's very human <laughs> yeah i mean it's interesting because they're worried about uh i mean on the international scene you've got the rising power of assyria which people are worried about right and Elsewhere in Isaiah, we hear that the wealthy are buying up small farms and consolidating them into big ones. And we hear about people in chapter five, uh, you know, reveling in luxury and all night parties and stuff. So it seems like, you know, there's sort of things are shaky, at least with this rising power internationally. And at home, they're living in prosperity and yet not taking care of the poor. Uh, you know, it seems that, that there's a sort of a lack of love of neighbor. And yet it seems like there's some, worship going on you know it's you know it's interesting because you have uh this prosperity brought by king uzziah financially and economically uh but there's there's some worship going on but the lord doesn't like their worship because it seems like duplicitous they've sort of separated out uh worship and religion from the rest of their lives yeah there's that um 
and I mean, you can see the parallels to that in our, in every moment of time, including in our own, um, where you have a civil, uh, a civic religion in the midst of, you know, a generalized prosperity, um, but for, you know, limited to a, the 1%, um, and those who are closest to them in the, um, in the chain of being. But, uh, yeah, there's a, a lot that's being, there's a lot of humanity that is, um, not being cared for. And yet, um, let's do all of this stuff properly and let's have all of the right ritual and let's, Make sure to remember all the feasts and all this stuff. And God's just saying he doesn't have. In fact, when you come to appear for, before me, who ask this, these sacrifices from your hand? Um, he's saying I didn't. And I, I found something in Ambrose that was really cool. He says, um, he says, God is saying this. I abound in my own sacrifice. I don't seek yours. <laughs> which is really interesting. Um, he already abounds in the sacrifice that he has made uh, from the foundation of the world for love of the world and doesn't need all of this animal blood um, and definitely doesn't need their feast and convocations and new moons and Sabbaths and so forth. What he really wants I, I mean, he, the the prophets say this over and over and over again. Are you taking care of orphans? Are you taking care of widows? Are you know? Um, are you doing justice? Are you rescuing the oppressed? Um, yeah, it's it, it's kind of clear. I, I I love how he says, you know, come now, let's let's argue it out, let's reason together. Um, he's interested. And the abandonment of all of this for true worship, um, he, he's giving them a moment to see things in the way of love and not the way of competition and the way of love and not in the way of scarcity and the way of love and not the way of, of hoarding and the way of love and not the way of um, oppression and so forth. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It's interesting, you know. Alexander Schmemann, his great little book for the life of the world, talks about the nature of original sin. And he says, original sin is not pri primarily that man has disobeyed God. The sin is that he ceased to be hungry for him and for him alone, ceased to see his whole life depending on the whole world as a sacrament of communion with God. The sin was not that man neglected his religious duties. The sin was the thought of God in terms of religion, opposing him to life. The only real fall of man is his non-Eucharistic life in a non-Eucharistic world. The fall is not that he preferred world to God, distorted the balance between the spiritual material, but that he made the world material, whereas he was to have transformed it into life in God, filled with meaning and spirit. And you think about that, that sort of like separating, you know, making the secular and the religious. And, and here it seems like Israel has bifurcated how it thinks about the world, its own internal affairs, and its own religious life. Yeah. Um, I think valuing what God values, um, God becomes human. Um, God loves what he makes so much that he becomes what he makes. And, um, he does not like, um, certain humans, um, deciding to exist 
without the uh, the rest of humanity, um, you know, existing in their same uh, abundance and um, and they're uh, you know and they're not sharing with uh, those who do not have. And um, so for him, as so many other places, true religion, to be in relationship with him, to be in relationship with our neighbor, is to, um, is to look for those who are uh, at the margin, to look for those who are um, been left out, to look for those who are being um, uh, trampled under uh, all the rest of human activity and, and raise them up. Um, and to take care of them, to love them. Um, so, yeah, and, and if they were doing that, then, of course, all of the others, uh, it's not It's not like the ritual itself is problematic. It's the ritual in the absence of the thing, the most necessary thing. So, Yeah, I, I, and I think it's interesting, too, because in his great book, The Theo- Theology of the Prophetic Books, Death and Resurrection of Israel. Don Gowan says that you could read the prophets as deuteronomistic, right? Like Israel, you know, you're sinning. If you sin, you'll die. If you choose life, you'll live. And that's how you read it. But he says, no, the message of the prophetic books in general is Israel has sinned. Therefore, Israel will die. And now Israel must put its hope in the God who can raise the dead. And you, you see that here, even at the end of this is your sins are like scarlet now, but they shall be like snow that, that, that somehow the death uh, gives makes space and possibility for resurrection. Yeah, he's he's telling them. Um, he, I, I keep going back to Ambrose. Um, I don't seek your sacrifice. I have, I my sacrifice is what did he say? Um, he says I abound in my own sacrifice. So he he's going to make a sacrifice. That covers all of this, and yeah, the, the, and of course, resurrection's a, a key theme in Hebrews um, that we're getting to be getting to. But yeah, he is going to raise us from uh, this situation that we put ourselves in, where we're we're going through the motions, giving a lot of lip service to God, but not really loving our neighbor. So we can't really love God if we don't love our neighbor. Um, and so I'm excited about the fact that he's going to act to rescue us from it, but I also want this word to address me right now. Um, uh, in the, in the existential moment, um, that we're living in right now, I can also choose to not just hide behind liturgy and the Eucharistic table and the reading of the scriptures and my prayers and my, celebration of advent and all of these things um and not forget that um you know there there are human beings that um that that I can make a difference um in their life um by a attitude disposition of of abundance um founded no doubt in the abundance of the sacrifice of god yeah all my brothers down on us Hebrews, we have 
Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3, and then 8 through 16, you have this great passage from Hebrews saying that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, And then he talks about how the ancestors in the faith were looking for, you know, things that are not visible. They, you know, they're persevering. Of course, Abraham is setting out as a pilgrim looking for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You know, he, Abraham and his pilgrimage to sort of receive the blessings is this model of, of the pilgrim who walks by faith and not by, by sight. And then, you know, the, the implication is that we too, you know, these people and that the writers writing to in the book of Hebrews are, you know, even though maybe things are challenging for them, that they too are pilgrims who are called to walk in faith and with an, looking for an inheritance that they can't see. I love what he's doing here in the opening of of Hebrews 11 with um, ex nihilo creation, um, that things were made uh, from what is not seen. What is seen is made from what was not seen. And that our, that it's actually, we have a faith that this is how the world was made. We don't know this is how the world was made as an empirical way, but we are, but by faith, we understand that the world, world's, the universe itself was prepared by the word of God. Um, you know, not just the spoken word of God, but the, the, the son of God, the one, the crucified God who speaks all things into existence. That, that, that's an article of faith. Um, and, uh, so I think that's really helpful in, uh, maybe some of our uh, contemporary debates, um, uh, about creation and so forth. But then right away, you know, in the follow, the Sunday that follows this, it goes on to talk about the rest of the heroes, right? But it starts out with Abraham. Um, and, and, and by faith, again, what wasn't, they're old. Both of them, Abraham and Sarah, aren't able to bear, but procreation happens from what should not be comes a reality. Um, and then out from this one person that's born of them, it goes back to this cosmic thing of, of from this one child, all of these nations that God um, wants to be in relationship are descended as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. It's all connected. Um, there, there's a story of God creating the world from nothing. Then there's the, then there's the story of God creating Israel from nothing. And then, of course, creating the church. Um, and, uh, that's beautiful stuff. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's you think of this like the city that has foundations, and you're saying, yeah, the nothing you can't see it, and yet there's this there is this massive seed and blessing. Yeah, G. Campbell Morgan, the old British preacher, uh, tells a story of when he was visiting Italy, and he wandered into this old cemetery and saw a gravestone, a big headstone of this apparently prominent Italian wealthy person who centuries old, the headstone. And up in the middle of it, there was this massive tree that grew in the middle of the headstone. And it's obvious, like what had happened, I guess, that like, you know, as they were digging the grave or something, a seed or an acorn or something, you know, some sort of seed fell in and then they put the headstone over top. And, you know, if you were betting on what's going to win, if you're looking at this little seed or this massive marble slab, this huge thing, you'd bet on the slab, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> but, yeah. but eventually the seed flowered and cr- broke open the slab, you know? Like, <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's this, you know, we, we see through the eyes of faith, uh, reality looks different and nobody would bet on Abraham and Sarah as, you know, this Adam and Eve who are in a pagan, this new Adam and Eve, you know, being in this pagan, you know, worshiping other gods, Joshua says, beyond the river and un- and childless. And they're going to be the new Adam and Eve and, and, and help you know, redeem the world and bring forth the Christ. Like, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't bet on that. And yet that is exactly the faith that sustains the promise. And um, to get back to, you know, um, the kind of scarcity that I think people were um, living or an idea of that the world is governed by scarcity and not the abundance of the sacrifice of God for it, the love of God that we see in Isaiah, um, once again here, you know, they die, um, having not received the promise. Um, it, it, this is repeated later in the chapter for everyone else. Um, and, uh, recognizing their strangers, foreigners on the earth, um, that, but they seek another homeland, a city, you know, I mean, uh, built without, built without human hands. Um, that is their inheritance. And I think it's this better country. Um, that we're the, the world that's coming to this world that is our hope that, that energizes our, again, this is all God's work that energizes, um, our own participation and, um, and, and, and the kind of work we're doing right now to bring about the world that's coming to this world. It's a partnership between this, the, this abundant sacrifice of God and our own sacrifices. And when we're looking for to establish our homeland here and for the end game to be here and this this you know what we've built to be the the thing instead of what God is going to build and the world that's coming to this world, we'll get we'll get connect we'll we'll start feeling too familiar with it. We'll start trying to put up walls around it, we'll start trying to uh keep it and hold on to it when what God is saying is join my sacrifice for the world. There's a better world coming. There's a better country coming. And, uh, if you, if you have that sort of perspective, you're going to, you're going to relate to the people around you and other human beings in the way that I do. So. Yeah. What does C.S. Lewis say? If you, if you aim for earth, you miss heaven. But if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. <laughs> yeah. And on to Luke 12, verses 32 through 40. Here Jesus is telling the disciples, the little flock, uh, not to be afraid. For it's God's pleasure to give them the kingdom so they can give away their possessions and and don't worry, not worrying about that because they have a, a, an inheritance in, hev- in the heavenly kingdom, which can't be taken away. And he encourages them to be dressed for action uh, and talks about uh, be like those waiting for the master return from the wedding banquet uh, so that they may open the door for him. And, you know, blessed are the, sl- are, are the, are the ones whom the master finds alert, you know, when he's coming and they're not sort of uh, asleep or goofing off or something. Um, and then he concludes, you know, but know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. So there's all this, there's all these kinds of, it seems like there's this assurance that, they had this inheritance and then there's this, this kind of warning about missing the kingdom, you know, sort of being like the people that are unawares and caught by surprise in their unawareness. 
uh, you would almost think that the designers of the lectionary knew what they were doing. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, it, you know, Isaiah sets a stage, Hebrews gives a, a deeper insight, and then finally, here in the words of Jesus, um, we, we, we hear the same message. Um, you know, don't be afraid. Um, you're, the Father, it's the Father is going to give you the kingdom. So there's a world coming to this world um, that's, that's a much greater value. Uh, you know, invest yourself in heaven. There, um, you know, nothing can, no thief can come, no moth can destroy it. Um, and, uh, just, just live your life as an investment in the world that's coming to this world. Um, and so it's just like, it just builds on, um, each of these things. I, um, I was really taken, um, by this idea. And, and of course it's, this is not the only place that he, he talks about it, but, um, of, you know, the thief, you know that comes, um, in the middle of the night. Um, and, uh, the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not let his house be broken into. Um, I, I do think that, um, it, we're, we have this unique situation, uh, human beings do, um, of living with contingency, of living with the possibility of loss, of living with the threat of violence, of living with the, um, the, the, the threat of change, of things not remaining the same, of, of all that we've worked for, um, going away, um, in an instant, you know, um, the, I, I was, I, some people will think this is an, this is way off topic, but I don't think it is. There, there's a really interesting film that starred Hillary Duff that came out this year called The Haunting of Sharon Tate. Um, that, that re, that reimagines the story of what happened with the Tate LaBianca murders, uh, with her, all these premonitions that she has of the, of the great violence and tragedy that's going to happen to her and how over, over several days she, she gets greater, greater, greater sense of some evil or darkness that's going to happen, uh, be a dream to the point where by the time the actual um, the thief show the, the, these hor- these these cultists show up to murder them ritually murder them. She has a way of they all fight back, and so it's kind of an alternative ending to the story by which all these premonitions take place, and she's prepared um, to do battle for herself and her baby, and even in the absence of her husband, um, and with these people who are sort of careless that are staying there with her. She is able to fend off, and in in the end, I I won't give away the film. The film doesn't completely dismiss reality, but it was interesting in the sense of this fear that we live in of everything being taken away from us, uh, this existential reality that we all face. And here, um, Jesus is saying, "Don't be afraid. The Father is going to give you the kingdom." You can give, you can't outgive me, you can't out, um, treasure the poor, you can't out treasure, um, the things that actually I treasure, um, I, cause I treasure all of it more than you do. And you can really give your life away. You can really give 
yourself away. You can really give and let go of holding on to all these things because I'm going to rescue you. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And what's interesting too here in this parable, like often Luke's parables, they have this, it has this weird twist. Like the, sh- the shepherd never leaves the 99 for sheep for the one, right? And the, the Samaritan never writes a blank check for the Jewish injured person, right? Here, the master that comes home and finds the slaves ready doesn't usually goes to bed after a wedding, right? He doesn't sit down and serve them, tell them to eat and serve them. You know, so it's like this master that's that, so what you would miss is being served by the master. You, I'm almost picturing Jesus washing the disciples' feet, you know, I've called you friends. And so you have that twist. And, you know, I was thinking about what does it mean to be ready? And I had Phil Carey on the Give and Take podcast this week. It was, he wrote this great book, new book called The Meaning of Protestant Theology. And he talks about contrary to what most Lutherans think, justification is a process for Luther, but it's the process of always just revisiting what God has done for you in Christ. It's it, it's the, all the higher and deeper is based on again and again, going back to the cross, going back to your baptism. And so in, in some sense, being ready is you're right, knowing what God's done for you. And, and like Luther says, you know, it, you know, if it's our good works aren't for God, they're for our neighbor, that when you really know what God's done for you, serving you, then you're not worried about, uh, you know, you're not doing your good works sort of to climb a ladder into the kingdom. You, 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 the kingdom's come down to you. So your good works can really go to your neighbor and you can, you can really uh, love in the name of the king and bear witness to the, 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 the you know, the peaceable kingdom. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. I just, uh, George Herbert's poem, Love, have you ever heard that before? No. Where, where no. the, where the, where the, where, where someone who's been following Christ is, um, just happy to be in heaven. And he goes, he sees the table set for the great meal. And he's like so happy to be there that he just starts to like, what can I do to serve? And how can I, um, how can I, you know, make this everything that it's supposed to be? And then love, he says, love walks in the room, takes her by the hand, sits him down and says, I'm so glad you're here. How can I serve you? Mm. <laughs> that's what, you know, that's what popped out of me. So it's just really all these things you know, get down to our misunderstanding of the character of God. And when we, as you said, understand Luther, understand who he is. He's the one who wants to reason with us. He's the one who wants to understand it's his sacrifice. He's the one who wants us to understand that he's the one who makes things out of nothing. He's the one who brings babies into wombs when there is no possibility of that. He's the one who is whose sacrifice is abundant. And when he comes back, there's nothing to fear. He's coming to serve us. He's coming to uh, set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He's come to uh, he's coming to uh, to to make his abundant sacrifice known in everyone's life. Yeah, and may uh, may our hearers, you know, preachers, and and those who are hearing the word uh, encounter in the word proclaimed uh, the 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 good servant who descends that we might be lifted up. Ken, thanks for doing this again. Love this show. Love how you run it with all these different people that are that appear on here. It's a great show. Thanks. We'll have you back soon, my friend. God's peace. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. 
Thanks to Ken for being on the podcast and thank you again for listening. And until next time, friends, fare the